Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is Larry Wilmore. You're listening to Black on the Air. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, really fun show today. A little bit of a departure. Uh, I am talking to celebrated author Walter Mosley. You know, the author of Devil in a Blue Dress. And uh, man, he's written so many novels, though. It's crazy. And he's the 2020 National Book Awards Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters. Also, he is starting a masterclass that is available now. You guys can download his masterclass on writing and fiction. And it's really good, guys. I've listened to it. And there's some really, really good stuff in there. Um, I mean, he's a master, teaching you a masterclass. What more do you want? Uh, Walter Mosley. So we have a good conversation about uh, writing and process and all that kind of stuff. And uh, he's just a great guy. Um, This is the time to do some reading, too. You know, you got some time right now with the whole pandemic still hanging around and the holiday season and all that stuff. I hope you guys are staying safe out there doing the right thing. This is, we got a tough, uh, what, like six or eight months coming up where they're going to be rolling out the vaccine to certain groups, but a lot of people are not going to have it yet. There's going to be some of these shutdowns that are still happening on and off. Uh, let me just say again, if any way you can support your favorite small local business, whether it's a restaurant or a bookstore or whatever it is, really try to support it. I feel so bad for some of these restaurants that have, you know, invested money in doing their outdoor dining and are told they can't do outdoor dining, especially here in California, Southern California. I do not see, and this may be controversial, I don't see outdoor dining as a big threat to COVID. And they've been really, really good and careful about doing their outdoor dining. That is a bit unfortunate. It would be great if they could keep that open because a lot of these businesses, if they go away, they're not going to be able to come back, you know, and many people aren't being helped the way that it would seem that they are. And when I say people, I mean these small businesses. It's tough enough on the individuals who are out there trying to get money to help them, you know, just get the basics. Um, And I hope Congress passes this relief bill very soon. I have, because I have never seen this, guys, where this kind of enforced depression. It's kind of been an enforced depression because of this stupid fucking pandemic. It made worse by, you know, the president's just terrible leadership on it. Thank God he's leaving. And I hope that the new leadership can uh, get through this in a good way. So my heart goes out to all the people who are struggling with this in every different way, but we're all in this together, guys. We got to do this. We got to do this. So anyhow, last night was my last uh, show for Wilmore on Peacock. And it was so much fun uh, doing that. And when I say show, I mean, I should say special. Because a lot of people think that it was a series and it didn't get picked up. Or will it get picked up? Well, it was really just an election special. And to be honest with you, I initially thought of doing a special in the election that was like one episode. I was going to do like a town hall was my first idea for this, maybe about a year ago, I was thinking of this. Um, I thought, man, I'd like to do some kind of special. I should do it on Peacock, like some kind of town hall. Of course, this is for the pandemic and everything. And then uh, it ended up turning into something beyond my wildest dreams, uh, this show that we did. But it was so much fun. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. And I may do something else like this for Peacock, who knows? But, you know, for the time being, I think this is great to stand on its own 
as um, our little contribution in the wilderness right now. And just taking this time to thank everybody. You know, I'm, I know I have thanked people before, but, um, you know, so many people that just made it so great. But I have to give a special shout out to my partner in crime, Joe Miller. She is so smart and so funny. <laughs> and we're like little, we're like little kids, you know, when we're writing together. It's so much fun. Just uh, feeling like we're in the back of a classroom getting away with just saying horrible things while the teacher can barely hear us. That's pretty much how our writing sessions go when Joe and I are writing uh, together. As far as all the other aspects of the show, too, just her ability to run a show remotely from New York is just phenomenal. So shout out to my girl, Joe Miller. It was great. And everybody um, who worked on the show. So we got this uh, runoff election coming up in Georgia. This is very important. For people who are in Georgia, we got to focus, you guys. We got like uh, maybe a month to go before this thing. It is so important for us to get those two seats and rest control away from Mitch McConnell as the leader of that Senate. That motherfucker has been doing this for too long. All he wants to do is obstruct any kind of Democrat who's in charge. Uh, A lot of people thought it was racial, but believe me, he will do exactly to Joe Biden all the stuff that he did to Obama. And, you know, (laughs) I shouldn't let that go so quickly. I'm sure a lot of the attacks on Obama probably was was racial from that standpoint. But who knows? Whatever. They just did it. Um, But we got to get that motherfucker out of there. Honestly. And um, there's just too many things that have to get done and have to get done in a certain amount of time because the challenges are so big. I feel like the Republican administrations of the past 30 or 40 years always leave a big fucking mess that the Democrat <laughs> administrations have to clean up. You know, the the big recession with George H.W. Bush, you know, and then Clinton comes, turns that around, and then W. comes in and the economy crashes <laughs> After him, Obama comes in. He's got to be the black janitor to clean that shit up. And then the economy's going well. You know, and Trump, you know, just cannot handle the pandemic. You know, a lot of it, arguably, of course, wasn't his fault. But still, it's just he's leaving another Democrat, you know, to have to deal with this crushing blow. So let's let's hope that we can get these two Senate seats and get that shit done, y'all. Get it done. I was on Joy Reid's show last night. She is great. Joy Reid, so much fun. And I was making jokes about um, <laughs> black people being afraid to take the vaccine. I want to make sure that I want you guys to know I will take the vaccine. I do feel that I need to see people <laughs> taking it first. And I'm saying that jokingly, but I think a lot of black people are suspicious of it. I made a joke about, you know, they're not trying to make it enticing for us by calling it warp speed. I mean, excuse me if I'm wrong. But on Star Trek, I believe the brother in the red shirts were always the first to die when they would go down on the planet. Um, you know, because black people have not had the best of relationships with the government trying to, you know, force things into our arms, let's just say. But this is different. This is a vaccine for corona. It is important for the black and brown community to get to get vaccinated and to take it seriously. I'm a comedian. I'm joking about it, but I do want people to take it seriously. Those communities, as well as some of, you know, the other sectors of older people or first responders and all that stuff. You know, we got to take this seriously. 
we got to get vaccinated and move on. And I'm hoping by summer, you know, hopefully we can be close to, not close to normal, but, you know, up and running maybe by summer. It would be great. So, so let's focus, you guys. The people in Georgia, we need you to focus. We got to get those two last Senate seats and we got to give our new president the ability to get some sheet done. Uh, the last thing I'll talk about real quick, it is kind of interesting. It's going to be interesting to see on the show, on the Peacock show, I talked a little bit about <laughs> how the Democrats immediately like to start fighting with each other and, you know, just quibbling over things that I feel aren't that important right now. And one of the targets was Obama, uh, interestingly enough, which really kind of makes me laugh because he was kind of slamming of the defund the police slogan. Although slogan is not quite the word because, you know, and people were saying, uh, you know, well, you've heard all the arguments out there. And uh, <laughs> he was kind of caught in the crossfire. It's very interesting how Obama will be treated in the next few years and in history. Because progressives got a little, they got a little nasty, a little testy towards him. You know, it'll be interesting. But that to fund the police is very interesting how people defend it. Because uh, people aren't being straightforward about it. It's not really a slogan. It's more like a prescription. It's saying, here's what I think we should do is to fund the police. It's not like No Justice, No Peace, where it's a little general, you know, it's more of a rally cry, um, make love, not war, those types of things. Um, even Black Lives Matter is more of a, a slogan, more than a prescription. Where defund the police gets a little tricky is that it is a policy prescription. So it's in that, you know, that penumbra, <laughs> if you will, between slogan and policy prescription. So what is it? And the fact that it has to be unpacked all the time and people want to have it both ways to say, well, it doesn't really mean that it means this, but then say, well, actually it does mean that. Yeah, but people don't like it. Well, because they don't understand it. But I thought you said it does mean that. Well, it doesn't completely mean that it means all of this. So it's just a big mess. But um, as a comedian, <laughs> I do find the fight over it fascinating. And I'll tell you why. This is another reason. And this has nothing to do with the thing itself because it's language. This is the one, one of the things that I talk about today with Walter Mosley. We're arguing over language, you know, primarily. And I love language. I think the way we communicate is very important, uh, that we should try our best to communicate as effectively as, as possible. And it's not so much that you have to use the King's English or whatever. I think the way that you use words when you're speaking to particular groups is important, especially when you, when you want to accomplish something. So sometimes your words should be chosen to rally people, you know, and sometimes the words are chosen to poke people, you know, and that type of thing. And activist movements are very interesting because um, some words are longer lasting than others. You know, when you look at activist slogan slogans versus political ones, political ones are horrible. Like Biden's was build back better. What the fuck does that even mean? That's so bad. Like I didn't like Trump, but. Make America Great Again has been used a couple of times. Reagan used it. Clinton used it. You know, at least that has a positive message, you know, but Build Back Better. It's so bland. Even Hope and Change, Obama's was so ridiculous. It was so empty. But Obama, a lot of people like to paint their ideas of what they wanted from Obama unto Obama. So Hope and Change kind of worked for him, you know. But for the most part, political slogans are very empty. They're not very good. 
But activist slogans are very good for the most part, and they're very long-lasting. Many of them, no justice, no peace, has been around for a long time. That one works, you guys. It is a rallying cry one, and it's also a poke at the same time. It really is good, you know. Uh, so defund the police is competing with all the good slogans, really, and competing to kind of explain itself at the same time. It's definitely a poke more than a rallying cry, but as a poke, you know, I don't know. It's a, it's a bit flawed, let's just say, you know, and that's me not agreeing or disagreeing with it. Cause that's a whole different discussion. Isn't this kind of nerdy, you guys? I love talking about language. And maybe we'll do that more in the future, just breaking, deconstructing things in terms of how it's messaging itself. All right. Anyhow, while we're on the subject of language, let's do this. We got Walter Mosley coming up. Like I said, it's uh, really, really a fun talk, uh, talking about writing and all that kind of stuff. I hope you guys enjoy it. And we'll be right back. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. All right, welcome back, everybody. Uh, man, this is the holiday season, and we got nothing but treats coming up. And this is this is a treat for me, and I know for you guys. Uh, he's one of the most prolific authors of the last thirty years, and decorated. He just came out of the blocks, devil in a blue dress. Still, I mean, just one of the funnest things to read and to see dramatized on the big screen. But he was just the winner of the National Book Awards Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters Twenty Twenty Award, Mr. Walter Mosley. Mr. Mosley, welcome to Black on the Air. Thank you. It's nice to be black here. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> we were just uh, catching up on our L.A. roots, but uh, New York assignations here, you know, which is kind of fun. You you grew up in central Los Angeles. What part of Los Angeles did you grow up I in? I was born in Watts, and I lived yeah. you know, in and around there until I was about 12. Then my parents moved over near uh, Fairfax and Pico. Oh, okay which they call Mid-City now. They used to actually yeah. call it West L.A. then, but no yeah. longer. And uh, and then, you know, I, I stayed there for a while. Then at, when I was about 18, 19, I just left L.A. Well, where did you first go when you left Los Angeles? Well, for the first, you know, little while I was up in Santa Cruz and, you know, and Berkeley and stuff like that. You know, it was 1970. It was it was the heyday. 
Right. Finding yourself, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I, I think I kept on doing that. Then I, I applied to college. I really wanted to get away from everything I knew. So I applied to college in Vermont, a college called Goddard College. And Goddard's like, if most colleges are liberal arts. This one is radical arts. It was, wow. it was fun. Wait, Northern California? That seems so odd. How could Northern California be radical? I don't understand. No, 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 no. Vermont. <laughs> Oh, in Vermont, yeah, yeah. I was I wanted to get far away from here, so I I, I went all the way to Vermont and wow. in the snow, and it was it's all country in Vermont. I mean, and yeah, it was a fun. It was that was a fun time. I stayed there, got kicked out of college, but then stayed and became a computer programmer, and then went back to college, and then moved mm-hmm. to Boston for a while. It was too racist for me back there in those days. So <laughs> I moved to New York, you know, yeah. and New York has been the place I've been mostly since then. You yeah. know, last thirty five years or so. You have such an interesting uh, journey, you know, you don't fit what most people would think, but, you know, in some ways you do. And I like how you term it too, when I'm talking about a writer, you know, because I I feel like you didn't think of yourself as I want to be a writer as you were growing up, right? That wasn't something that, and it came to you later in life. Yeah. What what was, what was that inciting incident? Was it, was it an accident? Was it just you were bored or you needed a change? Do you remember that that moment? I remember I was a computer programmer. I was in New York. I was working at Mobile Oil in Man- on um, on 42nd Street, uh-huh. Manhattan. And I was a consultant. So, like, I wasn't, I had, you know, an individual contract with Mobile Oil. And was that something you enjoyed? Did you, were you thinking, oh, yeah, this is a comfortable life. I, what do I got to complain about? Yeah. Uh, no, well, I said, oh, yeah, this is okay. And yeah, this is okay. That's what I wanted. Yeah, this yeah. is okay. Such a great yeah. statement. Yeah. And so I was there. And it was okay. And, you know, and I always wanted to do something else. And I've always been interested in art just in general. Uh, I don't even know why. I just was. And I was working there. And it was a Saturday. Nobody else was around. And I was typing in code. And then I just said, hey, wait a second. I'm tired of this. I'm going to type something else. And I typed this line on hot, sticky days in southern Louisiana, the fire ants swarm. That's fantastic. You just wrote that just randomly. And you sure it wasn't like a mini stroke or something like that. You're just. I don't know. It could have been. <laughs> when the stroke was over, the words were still there. So. Yes, exactly. That's yeah. the beauty of a mini stroke. You know, it doesn't stick around. You know, But it was great. You know, I, I wrote uh-huh. the sentence and I really liked it. Mm-hmm. And I said, this could be the beginning of a book, you know, in a very kind of innocent way. I was 34, 35. That's so interesting. I knew it was fiction because I'd never been to Louisiana and I'd right. never seen fire in. Yes. And so. That's so funny. Yeah. And that, and from then on, I said, well, let me try to do this in, in a mm-hmm. very California way. I wasn't thinking about getting published. I wasn't right, right, thinking right, right. about being a success or anything sure. like that. I think, sure. If I could write a short story, that would be really cool. Exactly. Yeah. Right. If I can finish, the, if I can finish a story, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, were you a big reader of fiction growing up? I remember in your, uh, in your acceptance speech for the award, you thanked a lot of writers, you know, I yeah. think people who were your inspiration. Were you a voracious reader growing up or was that something that you kind of did as you got a little older, too? I read mm-hmm. what I think is a moderate amount. I'm a slow reader, uh-huh. and but I read books and I really liked them. And it was, it was a lot of fun, you know, if I, and especially if I found people whose style of writing I liked. That was a big mm. thing. like if I didn't like your style of writing, I can't read your book. I mean, it was it's right. still true today. Yeah. And. I, I did read. I mm-hmm. don't really think that reading and writing are as close as most people think they are. I agree with that. Thousand percent. Yeah. Thousand percent. Yeah. A lot of people can can tell a story 
yeah. uh, and, and have never read a story. And Absolutely. a lot of people have read everything and couldn't tell a story. Yes, it's I, so true. Yeah. yeah, I read mostly nonfiction because I get a little embarrassed when people say, who are your favorite authors? I go, real life? Sorry. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm inspired by real life. That's what yeah. inspires me to write is thing, well, things that really happen. Right? Yeah. I mean, the, the worst thing to become is a writer writing about writers writing. I mean, yes. That's the craziest thing in the world, you know. And it's like, I, I mean, I, listen, I love fiction. I love reading books. It's really mm-hmm. a lot of fun. But when I come to writing, I don't think, well, you know, what, what did Dostoevsky say about yes, this? Yes. How do you think? I, how come I feel like an idiot, but I can't write the idiot? Right? Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But you know, the thing about the people I mentioned in the in that speech for the you know the uh, you know lifetime achievement at the National Book Awards, all of them were men. All of them were black men because I was the first black man to, man to get this award. And everybody I named, either alive or not alive, could have gotten it. And yeah, Absolutely. I mean, Ishmael Reed, Amiri Baraka, you know, I mean, Hakeem Adabuti out there in Chicago. I mean, there are all these really important people. And Amiri Baraka, who couldn't even get it as Leroy Jones. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, no, exactly. Yeah, he's he like, couldn't get it under either name. <laughs> and, you know, and, and he's, you know, I mean, he's, of course, caused a lot of problems. I think one of yes. our greatest writers ever. But there are a lot of people who didn't give people problems. They could have gotten the award, too, you know. Uh, Iceberg Slim could have gotten it. Chester Himes yeah. could have gotten it. You know, Absolutely. anyway. So anyway, that's what I was thinking when I was doing that, you know. And so you you wrote those words and you decided to to jump in and give it a shot. So now, so most people think, so did you like find books on writing or did you just jump in yourself or did you like start reading some stories as a guide? What what, what did you use as a, let's say, a template or 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 a guide to help you out? I had a, a friend who knew about a guy who was teaching, you know, a, you know, a published guy uh, who was teaching a workshop in his house. Mm-hmm. And so I went there to study with him, you know, and it lasted about five or six months. It would, it would be a weekly workshop. And it was interesting because he worked with both fiction and poetry. And the thing that I always tell people, you know, they want to know about, you know, how do I become a writer? How do I become a better writer? And I say, well, you need to learn what poetry is because poetry is the is the perfection of writing? It's what words you use, what kind of music it is, what kind of what is a metaphor, what is a simile, all of that stuff. You know, it's great. It, 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 it exists in poetry. I can't write poetry, but I certainly uh, enjoyed that. And then I went to City College. It had a they had a graduate program there that that cost less than forty thousand dollars a year. I think it cost two. And and so I went there and there were some really wonderful teachers there and it was a, it was a good program. And, and while I was there, uh, I got my first book published. You know, I, got, I wrote, you know, Devil in a Blue Dress. Wow. And when you were, how long did Devil in a Blue Dress take you to write from start to finish? It's very interesting. At first, I wrote another book. I, one, of the, one of the great writers in English, a woman named Edna O'Brien, was my teacher there. Mm-hmm. And she told me I should write a novel. So I wrote a book called Gone Fishing. And it's easy in mouse, but much earlier, 1939 or something, you know, in the woods. And I sent it out and, and everybody I sent it to said, well, it's really wonderful writing. However, it's not commercial. And I said, because, you know, and, and it took me a long time to figure out what they meant. But they meant was white people don't read about black people. It's 1988. Black women don't like black men and black men don't read. So, who wow. Yeah. You know, that was the, the that was a triple slam. 
Uh-huh. And they were wrong, actually, but it, none of that mattered. And then I, but I took the same characters and I started to write that one blue dress. It didn't take me long. I probably worked on it a couple of months. You know, it's a short novel. And I was, you know, I was so excited about it. Every time I thought of myself writing, I was, I was ec- ecstatic. I just, it was so much fun, you know, and I was around a lot of other people who were writers and were, you know, talking about literature, which I love. I love talking about literature. It's just, you know, I don't really apply it to my work, but it was fun. And then, you know, and that was an easy book to sell because everybody was saying, oh, that's new, uh, a black detective. Like they never heard of Chester Himes or, you know, <laughs> Donald Goins or, you know, I mean, but anyway. Sure. And I, you know, that was the beginning. That was it. Yeah, it's really uh, interesting to make a, a debut like that. And that period, uh, I, by the way, I loved everything about Devil in a Blue Dress because I'm also, being from Los Angeles, I love fiction that takes place in historical Los Angeles in different ways. Um, I'm a big Buster Keaton fan, and a lot of his films mm-hmm. were shot in Los Angeles, a lot of silent movies, and you see the old L.A. But you have black Los Angeles, you know, you mm-hmm. know, in this period of time that I find very interesting. You know, there seems to be a lot of like hope in this post-war, you know, environment and opportunity. And it's kind of an interesting bubble <laughs> that time. Were, were your parents in LA during that period? Are you drawing yeah. from, from yeah. that when you're my writing father, that? My mother and father were. They, you know, mm-hmm. they come to They'd come, my mother, you know, you know, Jewish woman from New York had come in 46, I think. My father's here by 47, 48. Mm-hmm. You know, so many, so many black people moved here because, you know, it, you just couldn't get a job in the South. They said, well, yeah, you can shovel shit if you want. You know, I'm not going to pay you uh, until you prove me you can do it. My father, all my father's family came here to work. Mm-hmm. My mother, uh, who was, you know, a, a Trotskyite from New York, came here and That's great. she was working. It was, it was a, f- a very funny thing. You know, she was married to a very wealthy man who lived on one of those private streets down toward, you know, downtown in L.A. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they were married and they were living together. And my mother got said, but I'm a Trotskyite. I got to get a job. I got to work with the people. So she got a job working in a school. And my father was a janitor in the same school. Wow. And they met. And I don't know what happened. But one day she came home to her husband and said, you know, I, I realized I don't love you. Wow, <laughs> and and that was the beginning of, of of you know them getting together for me at any rate. Yeah, so you can kind of thank Trotsky for uh... Trotsky. He helped me out, <laughs> <laughs> helped the brother out. That great migration, when it's talked about, is usually talked about from the south to the north. It's not talked about so much from the south to the west, right? But we, as we, you and I know, there's a gigantic influx of black Huge. people. Here and, and up around San Francisco, absolutely, just thousands and thousands of people came. And, you know, it was great. You, you were living in a place where you couldn't get a job and then you were never paid enough money. You could come here and get three jobs. And everybody yeah. did. So, well, exactly. I worked my, my day job, my night job. Now I got a thing on the weekend, you know, and <laughs> you know, I can buy a house. You know, I can, I can buy some cars. Yeah. And people really happy. Yeah, it's so interesting. That was uh, my, my parents came from Chicago. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my father heard a lot of that uh, wall being presented as what you could do, you know, what you can't do. Yeah. But here, you know, he got a civil service job. He was a probation officer when he started. Mm-hmm. Out, and that was that was a huge opportunity for blacks coming here. And many of his friends were like worked for the L.A. County sheriffs and some of those types of civil service, you know, um, mm-hmm. opportunities back then. Yeah. No, it, listen, in L.A. And that was my whole thing. I wanted to talk about black people in Los Angeles. By the time I got to the third book, I realized I was talking about black male heroes in Los Angeles. And 
there's so much to say. There's so much that, you know, hasn't been written about in, in, a, in a literary sense. You know, like these, they're not they're political books, but I don't I don't try to get that deeply into trying to solve some kind of political issue. I just, you know, people are just living and people have different actions. You know, Jackson Blue does one thing. Easy does another thing. Mouse does another thing, you know, and um, they're all kind of working toward a goal of identity. And it's just, it's very cool. I mean, it, to write about it, it was great. And, and that's the point. I have one, I have an uh, Easy Rollins book coming out in, um, in February. Mm-hmm. And, Blood uh, Grove, is that the name of it? Blood Grove, yeah. And I'm, I'm really happy about it. You know, talking about uh, veterans and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and how in, in a way being a veteran is a race mm. all to itself and stuff. It's really, it's really fun. Yeah. I saw you say once where, uh, you realize you weren't really a mystery writer. You're writing about black heroes. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why is writing about black heroes? And you made the distinction about male black heroes too. Why was that important to you? And, and there's even another distinction, you know, because I mean, w- one thing is there are a, a lot of wonderful women writers who write about black women heroes, you know, Toni Morrison did, uh, you know, uh, uh, Alice Walker. Walker. Uh, It it goes, there's a a big old list of these, those people. It's interesting because there are a lot of great black male writers, no question about it, but a lot of the the main characters are more protagonist than they are a hero. Somebody who you want to, you know, so you have Richard Wright. Mm -hmm. You don't want to end up being those people in Richard Wright. Yes. Right. 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 Even Himes, even, you know, even Himes, you know, uh, or, or Ralph Ellison, it's really, it's like, oh my God, this is so miserable. And there's no way for them to win this fight. They could just, you know, with some dignity. And, you know, I mean, that's where Mouse comes from, you know. So Mouse, yeah, he tried to kill me, but, you know, had my hands handcuffed behind my back, but I bit out his throat. Yeah. And, you know. No, Mouse. Mouse is one of my all-time favorite characters, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I love Mouse. Yeah. And, you know, that is interesting because I feel like some of that writing, whether wittingly or unwittingly, had to be done for a white audience. The way, because it has to be sold, you know, not saying that it was done for that reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. you know, there's an editor that's making a determination. There's a publisher that's making a determination. Like, I love Rich, Richard Wright as well, but you're right, you know, that the the white person reading it can more accept the black as a victim, you know, yeah. as someone that we don't have to deal with of being up here. We can deal with them being down here. I can either feel sorry for them. I can kind of say, I can try to help them, but they're always in the position of needing the white person's help or pity or something, you know, right. whereas a hero you know, doesn't need anybody's pity. Yeah. You know, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's really true. And, you know, the one writer I think who doesn't do that uh, in his fiction is Langston Hughes. Yeah, you know, simple right. story. You know, yes. I love simple man. Simple was he's the greatest. He said, "Yeah, yeah. man, you know, yeah, I, I I like women, you know, but sometimes they yeah. get on my nerves, you know." Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yes. yeah, I get, I, I I get what you know who who these characters are that he's talking about. Yes, and and I think that when you write about them in, in such a human way, mm-hmm. other audiences can identify with those characters. Absolutely. When I, I like to use as uh, simply says, well. uh, uh, what do you build in that 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 factory? And he said, mm-hmm. I don't know, man. You know, a box comes by and I put a little red thing in it and I'm moving on. That's it. Yeah. You know, anybody can identify with that because that's living in America, right? Absolutely. It was a big loss of Lorraine Hansberry going at at such a ripe age when 
she was writing contemporary Black experience in a way that was real and authentic. It's hard for me to, I don't really understand it in the basis because Black women writers, Zoria Hurston, all these people, their writing was, was a, had a, it was a different tenor. And I think that the thing that you're talking about is, is that a lot of Black and white editors, yes. uh, especially, especially women yes. white editors, the gatekeepers wanted to, see, wanted to see Black women who didn't like Black men. Correct. But, you know, a lot of Black women, they love Black men and they're writing exactly. about that too, you know? And I just... You know, and it's it's just you're trying to open a new thing. I think it's changed a lot mm-hmm. that there are now a lot of younger black writers out there, you know, and they're telling stories that we can, you know, identify with. on it. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of that is contemporary. And what is interesting about what you do and I always have done is going to the past. And um, uh, a lot of the actual black experience has either been erased or ignored. And there's like a representative Black experience that we're all supposed to accept as the be-all, end-all. But, you know, uh, how important is it in your work to expand, you know, (laughs) those areas where it's like, no, Black people live this whole range of lives, you guys. Well, that's the that's the big thing. That's why, you know, the book I had out most recently, The Awkward Black Man, it's it's 17 short stories about, you know, odd, uncool, uh, confused people, guys, yeah. you know, either they're, they're not doing well in their married life or they they study science or they, they get in all kinds of trouble, you know, and, and you're, and you're, you're just watching them and think I, the, the first guy, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's a little overweight and he yeah. says, I was really happy. I'm lost some weight. You know, he said, bad thing about it, of course, was, you know, it was cancer. He said, but <laughs> right. to deal with that now, you know, and right, it was like, right, right. I love that, you know, cause you know, that's, those are the people I know. Right. Right. Yeah, it is interesting how uh, the way that we expand is to not be writing about what our people think are black problems, but are just problems. Yeah, but it's exactly. a black person having this problem. Right. <laughs> it's just that, like life, you know. And, exactly. And, and that and that becomes great, you know. And yeah. that's why I did that. And I'm always doing that. You know, I, I write all right. kinds of books, but yeah. you know, the mysteries, you know, they sell, and I like writing them. <laughs> yeah. What is it about mysteries that you like? Why Why are you attracted to them so much? Is it Does it in is it something that uh, excites you as you're writing it? Oh, this is going to be good. Is that the thing? Do you like solving puzzles or, or creating puzzles, I, I should say? That's part of it. Uh-huh. And another part is you can, like, for instance, with Easy, the, the, the Blood Grove is the 15th Easy Rollins novel. Which is amazing to me that there's 15 of those. Yeah. It's, and I love, and I love writing it. And it's hard if you're going to write a, like, if you're going to write Beloved, for instance, you know, you're not going to be <laughs> beloved part two. No, and, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, it's like a bit heavy. Yeah. You know, and 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 I think that a lot of uh, stories, even uh, you know, fun contemporary stories like Terry McMillan, you're, you're not saying, well, I'm now going to follow it, follow it, follow it. But somebody like Easy Rollins, you know, who's a, who's a detective, he has a very particular kind of job. He brings you to all different kind of parts of L.A. He's had all kinds of experiences. He might, you know, go back to thinking about when he was in in, in the war. Uh, think about living in in, in uh, Texas and Louisiana. All of that is, uh, I, I think, something I can do, uh, and, and I can keep doing. And and therefore, you know, and and Easy is never in the same time period in any of the book. You say one year later, two years later, whatever, you know, it just keeps going. And and that's because that's in, in that way, I can really talk about, get deeper and deeper and deeper in, into him, his LA, his thought. So you know, because you know. One book is kind of short and 15 books is, you know, I'm rivaling some of the, the major novels there, you know. Yes. Like a suitable boy or something. 
Yeah, so Easy, he's it's not so much uh how how much more can I psychologically unpack from Easy? Easy's almost like a tour guide for you, <laughs> you know, in some ways to take us through to different uh areas and scenarios that you can unpack more of a, a wider a wider kind of uh palette of things, you know. Yeah of living in LA I, and yeah. I keep trying to do it and I have a lot of fun doing it. You know, yeah. and then I have Leonard McGill in New York and he's kind of fun. It's a whole different thing. And every once in a while, Fearless Jones, I, I, I kind of stopped writing books about Fearless, but Fearless appears in Easy Rollins novels now, mm-hmm. which is really a lot of fun. He just, you know, shows up and you know, says, Hey man, what you want? All right, I'll do it. And you're teaching the uh, masterclass uh, right now, which mm-hmm. is is that part of that's part of Facebook, right? Master, the master no, it's not. It's a, it's a, it's an individual organization. It's okay, called Masterclass. It. People, you know, pay us a, like a fee. It's like fifteen dollars a month or something like that. And they're like at this point ninety one people. You know, great. Like, who's going to teach uh, uh, cooking? Well, you know, uh, 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 Wolfgang is going to be teaching. Is going to be teaching uh, that. You know, and and there's all these like wonderful uh, people. David Mamet was talking about uh, playwriting. I have a class out there and my class is about writing a novel. You know, it's not writing a mystery, not writing a black novel, just writing, writing a novel. How, how, how you go about doing that? You know, how, how do you bring your heart to, to this, this thing? And it's, I don't know, the class like ends up being, I think like three hours long and mm-hmm. you can watch it in pieces and, and, and get to a certain place. And, and uh, yeah, that was really fun. They wanted me to do it, you know, and I, I, you know, I say, hey, that that's good. It it doesn't hurt to keep your, yourself out there. It doesn't hurt that somebody else says you're a great writer, even if you don't think you are. It's really great that somebody else thinks you are. Do you, you know? think you're a great writer? Yeah, you know, that's a really, you know, it's so interesting a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love my writing. Mm-hmm. Let me start there. You enjoy I, it. You like it. Yeah. Nobody else likes it. I love it. <laughs> I, you know, I read the first few pages of Devil in a Blue Dress and I say, you know, this is pretty good. <laughs> you know, that was a long time ago now. Yeah. It's still good. I still like this. Yeah. Writing is so much a part. It, it, it's so much of a shared thing, right? I write the book. You read the book. It's a different book. And when somebody else reads the book, it's a different book. And when I five years later read it, it's a different book. You know, it, it's it, um, it's it's a it's a really it's a cultural event. And a novel is always a cultural event. And so I don't know. I mean, I think I'm a good writer, and I think probably I've had a big impact on uh, you know people like you know who don't like who come up and, and somebody's telling them, well, you know, you got to read ten thousand uh, books before you can write a novel. You know, and I'm saying, no, you don't have to read no books at all, man. Just start writing it. This is where we go. You know, <laughs> right, right, right. It's a little easier. 10,000. Uh, uh, how do you remain so prolific? You can talk about all that you've written. What is, do you, like, do you ever take breaks at all? Uh, how, how do you do that? How do you, how do you write so much? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's like, I, I approach um, writing like Freud approached psychoanalysis back then when he was doing that. Somebody would lie on the couch and for an hour they would free associate. And there's a guy listening, a woman listening, and they're, you know, writing notes and maybe right. say something every few days or so. But every day that person is deeper and deeper and deeper into their psyche. Because mm-hmm. when you say something, when you think something, it works at the back of your head. So the thing that I tell everybody, I say, look, write every day, every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, write on vacation, write any every day. And you will get deeper and deeper and deeper and you'll become, you'll become better and better. And by the by, more productive. And so that's what I do. I write three, three hours every day, usually not more, sometimes mm-hmm. less, 
I write every day. And, and every time I sit down to what I was working on yesterday, there are new thoughts in my head. And, oh, okay, well, wait a second, I could do this. Oh, I could do that. You know, and that's, um, and I, I really, I, for me, that's the greatest thing. Some people are not like that, but I think 99% of people are. And that, and that is the, the big thing about the keep on writing. And, you know, and also writing is what I do. Mm-hmm. Like, right. I, I'm not writing and also, you know, teaching. You know, I'm not writing and also uh, being a programmer, you know, Mm -hmm. and even though I write for film, you know, I'm not producing films. I'm not directing Mm -hmm. films. I'm not, you know, I write. I'm I'm writing here. Here's what I wrote. Take it, you know. So a lot of that process is just the doing of it, because a lot of people get what they call writer's buck, which, you know, I think your theory kind of, I won't say disproves or it kind of makes that a non-issue. And I think what people think is writer's block, I think, is this need to have something. Uh, it's a results-oriented approach rather than a an action-oriented approach. <laughs> yeah, well, if, if you if you're going to keep writing, yeah. Mm-hmm. Though I, I often when people ask me about writer's block, mm-hmm. I I almost always say, "What do you mean?" And they, well, you know, when, when you can't write, I say, "When the, there's all kinds of writing. some people, you know, have a psychotic break, and they uh-huh. can't write." They, that person can't write. I'm not going to sit right. there and try to tell them writing three hours every day. Right. Although uh, we'd like to read some of that, depending <laughs> on who it is. Yeah. yeah you know, but n- you don't want to see the impact on them. You know, that. I mean, that's mm. the thing, you know. Uh, I do think that for many, many people, you just write every day. And if, you know, and if, if writing on that, you can't write on that right now, that's fine. Write mm-hmm. something else. I mean, it's right. okay. Put, put that thing aside. Write on something else, you know. And we can get there. We can get there as, as writers, I think. And I always tell people that the, the people who succeed as a writer, because I'm often asked that question, uh-huh. people who succeed as a writer are people who keep writing. Uh-huh. People who don't succeed are the people who quit. You know, uh-huh. those are those those are in two ge- very general ways the major yes, people. Yes, very you know? general. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think Arthur Miller said that uh, everyone has at least one good story, you know. Do you think that's true? I mean, part of the... I think you have to be a good storyteller of that story, though, too. Like, what is the distinction in your mind between having a story to tell and and getting the tools to tell that story? And is it reachable for most people? I mean, I would argue that most people don't have the ability to do what Walter Mosley do, does. No, but but they have the ability to do what they do. Uh, yes. So yeah. I, I think that, you know, in, in, in my class and also in a couple of books I've written about writing, mm-hmm. uh, I, I can give you the basic tools. Right. And if you apply those tools uh, well, you'll you know end up writing a novel, and it may very well be a novel that other people read. You know, because mm-hmm. people read things for all kinds of reasons. Yes. And so I I think that that that's that's true. That mm-hmm. that you, that if and even if you just write the novel for yourself, mm-hmm. that's a great movement in your life. Absolutely. You've put together a story. You've thought about it, the whole thing, and it's sitting there mm-hmm. in front of you. Maybe you're not going to get it published. Maybe you don't want to get it published. It doesn't matter. At least you've done the work. And so, you know, I, I talk about, because there's, there was another, you know, split. There's writing and there's publishing. These are two different things. Yes, you know? that is correct. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Uh, if one, you, if, a, a good novel doesn't necessarily mean that somebody can sell that. No, absolutely. There's a right. lot of really good novels nobody wants to publish now. Right. Matter of fact, all the good novels written more than 100 years ago, nobody would publish today. Yes. Almost all of them. You know, right, it, right. this is terrible. Why are you talking so much for it? You don't have to explain that. I, I can see that on, uh, on you know, and, you know. It so, took you half the book to do that? Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, 
Yeah. Uh, some, some people who are, who are, you know, immortal, but not many. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things but at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. One thing I've I've wanted to ask you and many writers like like yourself, uh, I I write from you know I write for television mostly and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And I wanted to ask you, do you have a sense of what your overall story is when you start? You know, like do you think here's the kind of the story I want to tell? This I kind this may or may not be the ending, but this is kind of where I want to go with this. Or do you just jump in with character and conflict and just start going and have no idea where it's going to go? Uh, I do both. Wow. See, that's fascinating to me. So both. how do you, how do you do it without, let's say, without knowing quite where it's going? Usually there's reasons for it. Like if, if, if I have a lot of problems finishing a novel, mm-hmm. I'll go, something's wrong. I'm not, I keep trying to go ahead and it's not working. Mm-hmm. And so then I'll outline. And mm-hmm. and it's a very general outline. One, sure. this happens. Two, that happens. Three, this happens. You know, mm-hmm. and I go all the way through. And so then I have the outline, you know, or the one, two, three sitting there next to me. And yeah. I work that way. Sometimes mm-hmm. if I have if I have a deadline, I outline anyway from the beginning. But then other times, like, for instance, with Devil in a Blue Dress, mm-hmm. I just wrote the lines. You know, I was surprised to see a white man walking in a Japanese bar. Not just that he was white, but he was wore all, you know, linen suit and shirt and a Panama yes. hat. And, you yeah. know, and I'm. And by the time I got to the end of that sentence, I knew my character perfectly. Wow. Exactly what he's going to be doing. Yeah. I couldn't tell you what he was going to be doing, but I I said, I, I felt I had a feeling for it. Mm-hmm. And I often just write like that. I just, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's fun. You just start it. Uh, most of the short stories uh, in Awkward Black Man, I, I wrote like that. I just said, okay. Mm-hmm. Somebody's going, going to meet somebody on a blind date, you know. Mm-hmm. It's going to end up to be a science fiction story, but we didn't know that. Well, it's real interesting because it, you're trusting your imagination to do its job. You know, you're doing your job by holding the pen 
or <laughs> by you know yeah. putting your hands on the keyboard and you're really trusting your imagination. I think a lot of people, it's ironic how they don't trust their imagination. Yeah, you know? that's absolutely true. Because and, not all writing can be culled from experience. Some There has to be a combination of experience and imagination, right? Yeah. In everything, even the most technical things, even yeah. in architecture. You know, I mean, you know, there there has to be a moment where, you know, because otherwise you're going to just do what you've always done. Right. So there has to be something something new in it. And um, if if you don't trust your imagination and but the, the idea of when you tell people to write every day, mm-hmm. they don't even have to trust it because it's going to happen. Right. You know, oh, my God, I'm doing this. You know, well, I, I guess I got to write something. All right. I don't know. You know, and then they write something. Yeah. You know, I, and I and that's really, you know, because it's so wonderful. You know, even when I have outlines, I very rarely follow it from beginning to end. Yeah. I start going this way and that way. I was going over a script this morning. I, I was writing and I, and while I was doing it, I go, oh, wow, I need to add this whole other scene in the middle of here because that'll mm-hmm. be a lot of fun. You know, and, you know, it wasn't it wasn't in my mind ever before. But mm-hmm. how important is rewriting to you? I know you talk about some in your class. You talked about one story about it took you 20 years to write something. Yeah, I mean, that's, that and, yet, and some things I'm sure seem like it, it went like that, like in a minute. Some of, a few of them are six weeks and yeah. one of them 20 years, you know, you got to add all that together to see how long it takes to write. Why do you think that happens? Like, I mean, it's hard to say, I'm sure, but uh-huh. like from your experience, when you look back, what, what do you think, why do you think it took so long for that? And why do you think some things can come out so fast, you know? Yeah, I, you know, it's the way your head is situated, you know, mm-hmm. like I write something like, you know, my erotic novel, uh, Killing mm-hmm. Johnny Fry, I, you know, all, all those thoughts were already in my head. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, okay, then this happens and that happens, and, you know, and it's a story, but, you know, uh, John Woman is a, a, a story I was writing about a, a deconstructionist historian. It's a okay. very complex concept to kind of work out. I think I did. But it took a very long time to think through it. Okay, so talk more about that. What do you mean by deconstructionist story? Well, it, it's like it, you know, the, you know, kind of deconstructionist theory is about approaching any kind of knowledge or or information and, and, and basically turning it inside out and taking the ownership away from the person who has it and making it their own. Okay, you know, and and you know, they do it with novels, they do it with music, they, you know, all this stuff. And it, it, it dawned on me that the only thing that's truly deconstructionist is understanding history, because we will never understand history. We will never know what happened a thousand years ago or yesterday. You know, you, you sit there with, with somebody and say, OK, what happened? And one person saying this and this. And I said, what? No, no, man, that, that didn't happen. This ha- happened, you know, and I'm kind of right and I'm wrong and they're right and they're wrong. And, and, and I wanted to, you know, talk about it, it because once if you're black and this is interesting because this is a black guy, but. He doesn't really think about being black ever, hardly ever. Uh, but when you're black, you you have to own your own history. And then, you know, and I really I was discovering all these things while writing it. Like the only people who have it worse than, than black people are so-called white people, because wh- white people don't know what a big part of their history is black history. They just don't know. And it's amazing. It's like if you don't know your own history, how do you take a step in the future? How do how do you how can you be sure of anything about yourself? You know, it was it's so it was, and I had to get all of that working together, right? You know, and uh, and this guy showing people how they don't know their history by deconstructing thoughts, everything, anything. It says this didn't 
you know, you think this happened, but it didn't happen. Uh, you, you think this was the reason, but it wasn't the reason. It's like we're talking about Abraham Lincoln. I mean, everybody says Abraham Lincoln, you know, wanted to free the slaves. Well, no, he didn't. You know, Abraham Lincoln wanted to save the Union. If freeing the slaves helped uh, save the Union, he, w- he wanted to do that. You know, it was, his, it was, his first idea was to send us to Central America, actually. That's what he yeah. proposed to Frederick Douglass. <laughs> Why don't you guys get on a boat and go? Yeah. You're causing all these problems. <laughs> so what could we do? You know, we can't change those people. And yeah. so, well, you know, anyway. But I, so anyway, so it took me a very long time to to come up with, with a, a reality for my main character, you know, mm-hmm. who has this crazy name, John Woman, you know. But in the end, I finally did it. I finally, you know, did it and published it, and I was very happy with that book, you know. Yeah. But I was also happy with Killing Johnny Fry, which only took yeah. six weeks. Right. And when you're going back in time, when you're writing something in another time, I'm sure part of it is part of it must be a history lesson for you as well. Are you your own history teacher? Do you do you do a lot of research on that? And do you combine that? Do you just make stuff up for that too? <laughs> like, <laughs> is there a combination of those types I do of things? Those things? Yeah, I was going to ask. You probably have to, right? Because you're creating characters, yeah. and there's no way that you're going to know a character, right? Uh, a historical character in in a, in a fiction novel. Sure. So you know, I make up characters, uh, and at the same time, I write about that period of time as much as I know. Uh-huh. And then when I when I say, well, wait, did 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 they invent the cotton gin in 1843 or not? <laughs> you know, I can't have a cotton gin exist when it didn't exist. Right. Right. You know? Right. Right. Um, and, and, you know, but you, you try your best because, you know, novels now, novels a long time ago, like, you know, with, with uh, Melville and, you know, everybody, they talk about all these details, you know. Yes. And like me, Moby Dick. Absolutely. Man, know more about whaling than anybody knows. Fascinating. About yeah. By the way, as a history book, Moby Dick is fascinating because that whole industry just went away. Yeah. You know? No, it's true. And it's it's like, but now we, we talk about um, the psyche of our mm-hmm. character. The yeah. world around us is actually less important, yeah. you know, the physical world around us than that person, how they respond, how they love, how they hate, um, all, all of that, you know. And if you mm-hmm. can understand that, then, then you've been really successful in most, you know, contemporary now. Yeah. yeah, because I guess the world, we're over inundated with information now. We don't really need to be told many things, you know, and ironically, I- we're we're closer together, but further apart intimately, you know, closer together yeah. technologically, possibly further apart intimately, you know, so the, yeah. the underpinnings of character are arguably more important now than ever. Oh, that, well, that's the thing to understand. That's the thing we don't understand, you know, and, uh, and it's hard, you know, have you ever mm-hmm. seen Ken Burns's uh, documentary on the Civil War? I've seen all of them, yeah. The documentary on the Civil War, you know, it's, it's, a lot of it is reading the letters yep. of the soldiers. Yes. And they're so incredibly poetic. Yeah, they're they so, they have such deep, like, feelings and understandings and expressions. Mm-hmm. And, and they're making up language, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, a general looks at a, a, a drummer boy and he's running. And the general says, boy, why are you running? And he said, I'm running because I can't fly. You know, <laughs> he's going. And I'm going, you know, you know, yeah. you know. And, and we don't make up so much things today because we're kind of codified. We all, you know, uh, you know, watch the same television shows, listen to the same music, read the same books. I mean, it's it's really and these people, they didn't have television. They didn't have radio. Half of them or more were illiterate um, or, or barely literate. Uh, the, they were getting experience, you know, firsthand. And it's just I mean, it's just it's gorgeous. 
and I think that that's one of the uses of a novel today that, you know, that we, that we understand each other, understand how we express ourselves, you know, um, Melville's time, they didn't have, I mean, they might've had the telegraph. That's would be about it. You know? Yeah. You know, it, it's like, there's no, you know, and there was, you know, books were being printed, but they were expensive for everyday people. And know? Moby Dick was an underwhelming debut. <laughs> you know, it did oh, that not was the sell. Of failure. Yeah. It did not. Yes. It was his almost his downfall, I guess. You know, it became a success years and years later when people wait, were kind of looking 1940s, back. 40s, 30s or 40s. And when he, he starts to become yeah. big. Yeah. Yeah. It, it it probably reached its apex in the 1920s. I mean, that's it took a long time for Moby Dick to be recognized for the. For well, the, all, you know, because the first books he did were action books. Yeah. There was you know people on the high seas, you know, fighting this, fighting that, you know, and it was yeah. great. But then as soon as you know Melville, who was an autodidact, taught himself how to read and write, right? Uh, when he started thinking deeper. Uh, people said, oh, no, I'm not interested in all this deep thinking, you know. What's he doing with Queequeg in that bed anyway? I don't know. I wonder, are we in a time right now where, I want to say this in the right way, like, I wonder about language, you know, Um, because we aren't as dependent on language in the same way. I mean, language is being reinvented all the time, but Technology is the means by which we communicate more often, and language seems to be the loser in it to me. <laughs> you know, like artful language, I'll say, and I I could be wrong about that. Well, Twitter, let's look at Twitter for instance. You know, the, there's just there's no nothing in it that is interesting from a language standpoint. You know, Facebook, there's nothing interesting from a language standpoint. Instagram doesn't even use language primarily, you know, but on the other hand, like I talked to my daughter about this. She, she's a polyglot. She, she loves languages. She's, she speaks other languages and she talks to me about how the different ways we're communicating are interesting, you know, and that a lot of the deconstruction of language that goes on, even with texting is interesting to her from that point of view. But, you know, I'm the old fogey in this, you know, but she's saying and, it's interesting to study. It may not be interesting in between the people doing it with each other. You know, I, I think something gets lost when there's not a interest in language as a form. You know, I I agree. I agree. I mean, in, in lots of ways. You know, yeah. that I, I mean, that's why I'm talking about the Civil War now. I think that yeah, you know, there was probably a, a deeper uh, dependency on language and and right. and able to express exactly what you mean than there there is today you know you ask yeah. somebody said could you explain to me that and said well you know go go look it up on youtube you know and you know somebody yeah. will show you how to do that or how to think about that you know and, so, mm-hmm. and and of course what you need is interpersonal you need you know mm-hmm. you and me talking to each other not you lecturing me on youtube um and I think that I think that that's true. And and you know, listen, I wrote a. I was so it was kind of shocking to me. I, about three weeks ago, I put an article out on in the Nation, um, uh, you know, the magazine, the Nation magazine, and mm-hmm. and um, and and I and I was complaining about how, if indeed we win this election, it was before the election. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to start changing our language. We got to, mm. we, we got to stop saying this stuff that we've been saying, because, right. you know, all we're trying to do is upset people. All we, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, it's not a communication. It's more like a, a, a hammer or something that we're trying mm-hmm. to hit. Each other. Yeah. And, and I used as my example, uh, defunding the police. Yeah. You know, I have yes. nothing to the concept. Right, 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 right. 
And I was so so excited because yeah, like yesterday, the day before, uh, all these progressives got mad at Obama for saying. I exactly saw that. That was fan- I know that was fantastic. I love those kind of fights because they're over language. That's yeah. what I love. Yeah. You know, well, it's a, and it's about and he's he's out there saying I was too in a in a lesser sense. Uh, we don't need to scare people and upset people and threaten people. We have to say we have to reimagine uh, law enforcement and 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 and. How are we going to do that? How are we going to do that? So we, we we service everybody. I mean, that's that's what defunding the police means. So it doesn't sound like what it means. It means that it sounds like there won't be any more money for the police, you know. And I know that sometimes I would like the policeman to be there, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, I have so much to say on that issue. I mean, for me, a lot of that is there's a difference between a slogan and a prescription. Yeah. You know, no justice, no peace is a slogan, you know. Right. Black Lives Matter is a slogan. Defund the police is a prescription. That is yeah. a policy prescription. You know, yeah. and if you're not clear with that, if you ha- tell me, well, that's not what it really means. It's like, well, then, nigga, why are you saying that? If that's not what it really means, say what you mean, you know, yeah. or be general enough that I'm not going to assume something other than what you're saying, you know, if yeah, it's, it if like it's a, very... a slogan and not yeah. a prescription. But if it yeah. is a prescription, own it. Say, yes. That's what we mean. Defund the police, you know. Right. And and then okay, let's talk about that. But and then there are consequences to that. If you're if that's what you mean, then accept that there's there may be consequences to that kind of slogan. Like both of those can be true. I mean, people you, you are trying to have it both it. ways. Yeah. Well, but but you know that but that's the thing because you know I mean listen part of it is, is the problem with Trump which is because he was so angrily aggressive at yes. people. And, yes, you know, yes. all the time and said, well, that person's stupid and this is awful. And, right. you know, and and people think, well, we got to fight back. And we got to fight back in the same way. But, of course, fighting back in the same way is losing the battle. Yes. And yeah, you, you, can't you don't do want you, you don't want to do that. You know, you know, you have to fight, but, you you know, you have to be you know, you have to be clear and you have to say, well, I want to do something that's fair. Like, you know, listen, I would have hated it if Biden lost the election, but then. You would have lost the election. It would have been fine with me. You know, I said, okay, I got to deal with it. You know, I, I had to deal right. with it with Gore. And, you know, okay. You know, but uh, but I struggled, you know, to win the election. Yeah. That, ha- that happened to happen, you know. But now I want everybody, I, I want to stop having red and blue. And, you know, and I just want to. But I think yeah. that all of that is about language. It's, it's yes. a lot of misconception. Absolutely. A, a lot of people are blaming me and you, and uh, but for how, how hard their lives are now, mm-hmm. these, you know, so-called white people. And and I'm trying to say, no, no, no. It's the corporations doing this shit to you. It's, it's the same <laughs> that happened to us, yeah. you know. It's it's the corporations. We know this. Let's work together. You know, that's what I want to say. Yeah, I don't. You know, I'm not. You know, I mean, you can go somewhere else if you want, but, you know, stay here. Let's work together. You also wrote an op ed. uh, It's about a year or so ago where you talked about being in a writer's room and 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 saying, nigga, I'll say it. You know, people say the N word. I'm like, what do you mean? The N word? Nachos? What are you talking about? Yeah, exactly. Because you can say the N word 20 times in a row. The N word, the N word, the N word. Nobody can be mad at you. Right. And they're still in their head understanding what you're saying. So why can't I say nigga? You know, what, what happened? I want to, what happened with that? I would love to know exactly what happened because I find that insane. I mean, I said it to the president at the White House Correspondence Center. <laughs> so you know me, what my opinion on this is, yeah. you know. Well, no, I, I, listen, I mean, language is, you know, freedom of speech is like, yeah. that's it. Freedom of speech is it. You know, that, that's the one thing that might make America different than anybody else. You know, yes. to, to actually say, no, he can say anything he wants. That's you right. Can't all of a sudden say, 
you know. But you know what happened was I was in, in a room, um, you know, it was a writer's room, and and I was in one part and some other people in another part, and and we were talking about getting stopped by the police, you know. And mm-hmm. there's a couple of black people in the room. I don't know if anywhere in the mm-hmm. place where I was, but um, it was mostly a white room then. Uh, yeah, well, mo- yeah, it was mostly a white room. And oh, I'm sorry, room, I'm sorry, it was it, Hollywood. What am I thinking? Yeah. <laughs> a snowfall is mostly a black room, but yes. but you know that's unusual. I was, you know, they were talking about being stopped by the police. I got stopped here. I got stopped there. Mm-hmm. This happened. That happened. And I'm going, well, you know, I was a long time ago. I was walking down Robertson Boulevard. I was about 16. And a cop stopped me. And he searched me and he questioned me and he searched me again. And he questioned me and he went back and forth. And finally he said, okay, you can go. And I said, excuse me, officer. I was high, but <laughs> I said, excuse me, officer. He said, yes. Why did you stop me? I mean, I was just walking down the street. You know, I'm not doing anything. Obviously, I don't have anything on me, you know. And he said, look, if I see a nigger in a white neighborhood, I stop. And if I see a patty in a nigger neighborhood, I stop him. That's Mm. what he said. Mm. And and so I told that story. Yeah. Next day, I get a call from HR. You're you're telling this story of something that happened to you. And someone calls HR. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. And, and the guy mm-hmm. saw, the guy felt bad. You know, he felt bad. You know, he's like saying, well, you know, uh, Mr. Mosley, uh, you know, this and that. And, you know, said, and, you know, you could have said wor- worse words that we would have fired you instantly. But what? because you just said this word, uh, we, you know, we're, we're just warning you, you know. And I went, all right, fine. And I got phone and I went home. I just went home. I just walked away because I, you know, because I mean, really, I'm gonna be in a room where now people are like watching what I'm saying, right? You know, you know, in a writer's room. Yes. If I was an, a, an insurance adjuster, I could see maybe, you know, uh, you questioning, but still, if you're telling me a story about what happened in your life, you know, and you know, people saying, well, you know, we can only say the N word, and I'm going, but the N word makes you free to say it. Yeah. Nigger, that's different. If you say nigger, that's different. That's like, oh. Right. You know. But also, how there. dare you tell me I can't speak from my experience or say that, uh-huh. you know, that's Absolutely. from my experience. I'm not saying that about somebody else's culture. Yeah, I wasn't call- I wasn't calling him anything, you know. Right. But by the by, they didn't get mad at me for saying Patty, which right. insults right. for Irish people. Yes. But again, I was just repeating what the guy said to me, you know, it was just like. It was so funny, you know. Yeah, this almost like a Sovietization, you know, of oh, yeah. language that is happening. You see it a lot on Twitter, but the fact that it would happen in a writer's room where, you know, like who's being triggered by that? You're a writer for Christ's sakes. Yeah. I, it almost seems like it's it's not even true. Like, it's like somebody was looking, eavesdropping on the room and just heard that. I can't imagine a writer who is serious about writing could hear you tell that story and actually say they were offended. I, that blows my mind. But you know, that's, that's a big thing about. And writers. and call somebody and say, uh-huh. I was offended. Like yeah, that, all of those things happen yeah. blows my mind and not even come to you and say, Hey man, I know what you meant, but that kind of like have a conversation. Just, yeah. just speak to you personally, even would have been better. 
Well, yeah, but never, you know, you can never, and they'll never tell me who said it, you know? So like I can never, because really the the whole job for HR, in my understanding, was so that the people working together can get along. Right. But if we never talk to each other about it, it's always going through a third person and it's always with the threat of getting fired. Yes. I said, no, I I can't do this. This This is wrong. And then, you know, it was great because they were so upset. The, the, you know, the lawyers were so upset. They said, uh, you can leave. It's fine. But, you know, uh, you know, we're not going to give you any money. We're not going to give this. And I, and I hadn't asked for money, but they said, you're not going to do this and not going to do that. And not going to do this, you know. And, you know, listen, if they said they're going to give me three hundred thousand dollars, I might have said, OK. And they said, well, you can't talk about it. I said, well, OK, I'll keep the three hundred. <laughs> but, the, but the thing is, they didn't offer it to me. Right. And so then I was able to write uh, the op ed piece. Yes. Which. I think is great. You know, I think that, you know, we need to be talking. We need to be saying yeah. things, you know, and and listen, a lot of people of color get really upset at me for what, Absolutely. for my opinion, that, sure. that I no nobody, no white person should be ever be able to say that. And I said, listen, I, I said it, but if a white person said it, that's okay too, because listen, freedom of speech, you know, if maybe he's going to get his ass kicked, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, but you know, I'm not going to get in anybody's way of, about language. I may not like it. I might hate them. I might, you know, try to, you know, do something to them. But it, but still, the fact that they said it, I'm going, I'm going to, I'm going to go with that because I know, as soon as I start shutting up other people like that, it's going to fall on me even harder, which I I realized in the room. My early days of the Daily Show, John Oliver and I did a piece where uh, New York City Councilman wanted to ban the N word, and uh God, it was so funny. We just tortured him, tortured him. <laughs> you know, that's what our class pieces did. And a few years later, I did a, a separate piece on, you know, this was a movement that may still be happening of people wanting to alter Mark Twain's words in Huckleberry Finn. Yeah, 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 yeah. And replace nigger with slave. And it's like, well, no. What? Why do you want to change that? You know, to make you feel better? I don't right. understand that thinking at all. Like, oh, absolutely. And, and acting like history, like this didn't happen, that people weren't, you should know that this is how people were referred to, how black people were referred to. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. It, it's so funny, too, because they say, well, let's play uh, replace nigger with a uh, slave. And then, you know, a new political movement comes up and says, we can't say slave, we say the enslaved. So they say, <laughs> so the enslaved man, <laughs> you know, and it's like, but. You know, I understand, you know, but you can't you no. can't take your language today and try to impose no. it on the past. I, I, I consider that burning receipts. That's what I call that. It's like you are burning all the receipts of how black people were treated in this country. Like, let's get rid of Gone with the Wind. OK, when white people come around and say black people were treated great, you just you just help them by getting rid of all the evidence. Yeah, right. <laughs> you want to get rid of birth nation? That's well, evidence way, as far as I'm concerned. Those are receipts. You know? In a way, that's exactly the intention, though, right? The intention is to completely get rid of everything. That whole idea of the triggered, you know, there's all this yeah. stuff in me that I'm nervous about, anxious about. Well, if right. I get rid of it all, I never have to feel anxious. And I'm right. saying, what the fuck do I care you feel anxious? And maybe you should feel anxious. There's some shit to feel anxious about out there. <laughs> It's, it's like I, I had, I, had a, I went to a meeting where people said we have to, you know, outlaw uh, the Confederate flag. And I'm going, listen, if a guy has a Confederate flag in his heart, I don't mind seeing it on his front door, on his car. It's OK with me. You know, it's like I agreed. I don't think the government should yeah. be putting Confederate State flag. House shouldn't be flying it. Anyway. Yeah. But 
if a guy wants a Confederate flag, it's, you know, I mean, because it's, again, it's just going to boomerang back on me. But all of this is about your original thing about language. And I think it's true that language is, you know, language changes with culture, right. but it also might suffer with culture, right. you know, and that, and that, you know, it's a really important, you know, Mark Twain is, is a, a very important American writer. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, I mean, you just can't do you do that. Now, of course, I know a lot of people who, you know, who mad because their groups have been kept out of literature, you know, uh, uh, gay people, uh, you know, uh, all the incredible uh, Asian uh, people who came to America, you know, sure. over those centuries. There's all kinds of people who, you know, they're mad, you know, but. Yeah, they should be mad. This, these bad things happen to us, but, you know getting rid of somebody talking about it is not going to make any difference. No, not at all. It's been such a joy talking to you, Walter. I feel like I could go on forever about writing and all this stuff. You know, it's so interesting. Uh, I, I hope a lot of people uh, download uh, or however they get the Masterclass series. It, it's so interesting, your point of view on this. And you really open the door for it to be accessible to people, which I really love. You know, you just give just a simple method, just sit down and do it. Right? <laughs> Don't put too much pressure on yourself. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Stop reading Tolstoy and saying, well, yeah. I just wrote this line and it's not like Tolstoy. I said, well, number one, Tolstoy wouldn't sell today. Number two. Yes, exactly. Wrote a hundred uh, versions of that before it, it worked. You know, yeah. I mean, well, anyway, it was great to talk to you too. Absolutely. Any, any chance we'll see Easy on the big screen again at all or in some I form? I sold the Easy Rollins stuff to Amblin mm -hmm. and they want to do a TV series. Oh, that'd be great. And maybe we're going to, you know, I mean. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Maybe we're going to. Yeah. Really rooting for that. Walter Mosley, his new book, by the way, coming out in February, Blood Grove, if you if you are in love with Easy as much as the rest of us are. Uh <laughs> And uh, your short stories, I, I'll have to pick that up. I would love to read that. Yeah, I think you might like it. Yeah. All those awkward black men. Yeah, I've always, well, you know, I've worked with Issa Rae, who was the awkward black girl. So. <laughs> and congrats again for your National Book Award. Uh, it's so fantastic. I actually hosted that a few years ago. It's, it's such a great group, people that run that. No, it's really good. It's, it's gotten, and it's gotten better. Yeah. Walter Mosley, everybody. 